Right, please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 5. An amazing uh, passage, amazing passage, amazing verse, and we're not really going to spend a whole lot of time in the passage. I'm going to some more of a topical message called Grace to the Humble, Judgment to the Proud. Grace to the Humble, Judgment to the Proud. And man, does our world really need that message today. Amen. Because we need God's grace. Do we need God's grace? We need His grace in, in such a big way. And His Word teaches that his, He gives grace to the humble. That His grace is conditional. You don't just, everybody just doesn't get His grace. Everybody is under, uh, you know, what we sometimes call common grace, meaning God, because his, his mercies were not consumed, amen? Because it was just who He is, amen? But as far as receiving His saving grace, uh, it's conditional. God gives grace to the humble. Otherwise, everybody be saved. We don't believe in universalism, amen? And God tells us to bow down before him for to receive his grace. But the Lord God also says that he gives judgment. He opposes the proud, and he judges the proud. And if we're proud and arrogant and self-reliant and self-focused, and we think of ourselves independent of God, and we act like we made ourselves, and we are our own gods, and we pretend that we're God, and he's not, we invite judgment. And there's more than one form of atheism there's just you know you know philosophical atheism which just determines that everything's just a huge accident right uh which most people reject even after being steadily receiving a diet by media and nature shows and you know so forth and and the government schools most people the great proponents of people still say now nah, there's got to be a creator right but you can be a practical atheist you can say yeah there's obviously a god but you live independent of him. Okay, you don't, you don't give him thanks for making you. You act as though you made the air that you breathe, you know, that you created the food that you eat out of nothing or what have you. And we've got to be very careful because God's put it within us to recognize who he is according to Romans chapter one. And it's important that we understand this. So Romans or James chapter four, verse five says, I'm sorry, James chapter four, Verse, and, and, I, and I want to pick it up at verse 5. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose that he jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us? Think about what that, what that says. What is he saying there? Do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose that he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within us? Or to dwell in us. So God is jealously desiring because he made us in his image, the spirit that he made to dwell within us. Okay, now we use the New American Standard tra translation. It's, it's not the most fluid translation because it's more of a literal translation. It's a very good translation. Like the ESV, it's a, it was just also a more literal translation. They don't flow as maybe easily as the NIV and what have you. Sometimes when I'm just reading the scripture, I read NIV, it just flows, you know. And ASB, if you, you get used to it pretty quick. A lot easier than reading the King James, getting used to that, because I memorized a ton of scripture in the King James, but it's a very memorable translation. But it's interesting, that, uh, the translation, the NASB, I don't believe is the best translation for this verse. Why? Because he jealously desires the spirit, and the Greek word is pneuma. Okay, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for spirit or wind is rock. The New Testament word is, is, is pneuma. And the pneuma there can refer to the Holy Spirit, or the spirit that we, where the Bible says that when we die, the body's without the spirit. When the body's without the spirit, the body's dead, right? So 
speaking either of our spirit that he desires or the Holy Spirit that he's jealous to have. And it doesn't make any sense to me because the NASB unfortunately capitalizes the word spirit there indicating the Holy Spirit. But in the Greek, it's all one case. When you read through the Greek text, there's, it's all one case. You wouldn't know, there wouldn't be a capital one way or another. You have to determine by the context what spirit is being spoken of here. And uh, personally, I believe that the spirit there shouldn't be capitalized. The English Standard Version says he yearns jealously over the spirit, small s, that he has made to dwell in us. Those translators said we believe he's referring to the human spirit which I believe makes a ton of sense when you look at the context, because the context, God isn't jealous to have his own spirit. He is spirit, amen? And the spirit is called the spirit of the living God, and it's called the spirit of the Father. But he's jealous of our spirit because the context shows that the people he's concerned about are lusting after the things of the world and putting the love of pleasure, love of money, love of things, the love of the world before God. Just back up one verse to James 4, 4, and look at the context. You adulteresses. And why does he say you adulteresses? He's not talking about those committing physical adultery. But adulteresses refers to spiritual adultery. Because we are betrothed, the Bible says, to Christ. Metaphorically, we are wedded to Christ. But when we depart from him and we put the world before him, we commit spiritual adultery. So it says you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Then the next verse. He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to what? Dwell in us. I think it's really clear, you know, that you're loving the world. You're becoming an enemy of God and God jealously desires a spirit that he caused to dwell in you, meaning you belong to him. You're supposed to be living for him. I believe it's pretty clear. Verse 5. Uh, well, Verse 6 now, but he gives greater grace. I love this, man. We have a God that's so amazing. He gives greater grace. And grace is undeserved favor. Amen. We don't deserve grace. Grace, by its very definition, is undeserved. We talk about justice is getting just what you deserve. And God is just. But he's also merciful. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Amen. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Amen. It's by his mercies it says that we're not consumed every morning. Amen. And grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. I deserve judgment, but God sends a son to die for me, gives his life for me, so I can partake of his grace. Now, it's interesting, because he goes on to say in verse 6, but he gives greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed, check this out, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hence the title of my message, Grace to the Humble, Judgment to the Proud. He gives grace to the humble, but judgment to the proud. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. This is, this is military language that James uses here. It means to do an about face. mean, recognize that he's your creator. He's your maker, right? Submit, therefore, to God. Therefore, in other words, because God's opposed to you, the last person you want opposed to you in all of existence is the living God. Amen. The Bible says he's a consuming fire. It's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist is another military term. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So we join a spiritual rebellion when we live independently of God and say, I'm God. I'm going to do my own thing. We may not say, I'm God, but we can, in a practical way, reject God and just do our own thing. What our walk matters even more than our talk. 
Now, that, prov- that scripture right there in James chapter 4, verse 6, about how he's opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. We read that, that's actually taken from Proverbs 3.34. It's found three times at least in scripture. It's found more than that in various ways, but three times more specifically. Uh, Proverbs 3.34 says, Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. It's also found in 1 Peter chapter uh, 5. You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself therefore into the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you, or lift you up, in due time. So God resists the proud. God resists the proud. And I think it's important that we understand how serious this is. Pride is like is is the most heinous and most despicable of all sins because pride is like an engine that leads a whole train of other sins all other sins ultimately can be connected to pride pride is the root of all evil you say no you're contradicting scripture the bible says love the love of uh, you know love of money is the root of all evil some will say, now in the world, they say the money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Okay? When Satan sinned, there was no money. Love money is not the root of all evil. It says the root, in the Greek, it says the root of all kinds of evil. And it certainly is. Just look at what's going on in the world, right? It's the root of all kinds of evil. But Satan, the root of all evil, his rebellion began with pride. Now, it's interesting because you, you don't want to be proud, guys. It was pride that got Lucifer booted out of heaven. It was pride that sent him flying to the earth. It was pride, him declaring that he was as God. It was Eve, oh, I'm sorry, it was pride that got Adam and Eve, the first human beings, booted out of paradise that caused them to return to the dust because they wanted, Eve wanted to be as God. And Adam, in his rebellion, followed after her in rejecting uh, God's commandment. It was pride that caused Sodom and Gomorrah to fall into all kinds of depravity. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 says, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. It says pride, you know, and then it goes on to list other things, you know, but pride is the engine that leads the caboose. Isn't that interesting? It was pride that got the Jews, not once, but more than once, kicked out of the promised land as they began to do exactly what God said not to do. He says, when you, I bring you to this land that you have not made, this, with houses that you occupy that you have not made and so forth. He goes, don't be lifted up. Don't forget me. And of course, they forget, forgot him over and over again. It is pride that will cause the Antichrist to be defeated by Jesus Christ by the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming and be cast into the lake of fire because he will sit in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. It's amazing when you think about it. Humility is the foundation of living righteously before God. Of having a, it's from the human perspective, the subjective thing that we're called to to relate to God is to be humble before him. And I want to hit you with something that I think is so important. We're called to accept reality as Christians. We're called to be real. That's what humility does. Humility is just real. 
It recognizes that we didn't make ourselves. It recognizes that we don't make the oxygen. We do not make the food. We do not, we didn't discover and, and implement the process of photosynthesis, you know. We don't, we can't make a grain of sand out of nothing, you know. And we know according to virtually all scientists today, there was a time where time, space, and matter, the physical energy that makes up matter, did not exist. It's mind-blowing. And we came around a lot longer after everything was created by God. And humility recognizes he is God, I am not. And I need to relate to him as the one who created me and loves me cares for me and made me and not act as though somehow I am a God and don't need him and I'm not dependent upon him and act like I'm not dependent upon him. Pride is utterly satanic at its core. And I'm, I'm talking about pride. I'm talking about the biblical definition of pride, which is self-absorption, self-reliance, self-exaltation over God and his moral teaching. Now, the Bible says that the world system is based on lust and pride. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is of the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the world's passing away in the lust thereof, but he who does the will of God abides forever. It's 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Leviathan in Job 41, 34 is a picture of Satan, and he is called king over all the children of pride when lucifer rebelled against the lord we read in ezekiel 28 15 thou was perfect in thy ways from the day thou was created until iniquity was found in you ezekiel 28 17 says your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor so i threw you to the earth i made a spectacle of you before kings wow in Isaiah 14, 12, we read of Satan's rebellion. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, now look at his boast, I will ascend into heaven. Notice, pride is all about me, myself, and I. I will. By the way, isn't it interesting, when, when we're around people that are especially like arrogant and proud and full of themselves and unloving and uncaring and inconsiderate and insensitive, even worldly people that don't know Jesus think that that's typically repugnant. Isn't that interesting? People will glory in a lot of different sins. Lost people. You know, oh, wow, man. You ripped that person. Oh, how much did you get from the, you know, the bank that you ripped off? But when people are arrogant and pugnacious, even the wicked have their stomach turn. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Notice there's five I wills here. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Wow. Satanism says, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Jesus says, not my will, but thine be done, and teaches us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. And we have to make sure we don't fall into the same condemnation as the devil did through pride. The Bible says not to exalt a new convert to leadership. Somebody's brand new, they're here a week. Man, this guy really loves the Lord, man. He's real excited. Hey, you want to become a leader, man? You know, let's have you do this next week. The Bible says it's dangerous. The Bible says uh, very clearly 
not to do this, First Timothy 3, 6, lest he be lifted up with pride and he falls into the condemnation of the devil. And that can be translated as the same condemnation as the devil. Very interesting. The ESV translates it this way. He must not be a recent convert for he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The Greek word has the idea of becoming puffed up, you know. And the Bible says of just the way it will be in the last days. Remember last days, terrible times will come. Verse 4 says, goes on to say, they will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. You ever see those puffer fish, you know? I love to watch, I love to watch fish, you know, underwater, uh, saltwater fish and those puffer fishers, they just get really big and they're just, and they try to antagonize the would-be threat to look a lot bigger than they are. And that's not reality. That creature could say, ah, you're not that big. I just saw you earlier. You're just all puffed up. And that other bigger fish could just eat it up. But guess what happens to a lot of those bigger fish when they eat it up? That fish wasn't much of a threat as far as the size goes, but they're very toxic. They're very poisonous puffer fish. In fact, I've given an illustration with puffer fish before as to how in Japan you have to be very careful. Uh, you have to study for, you know, I guess I think like two, three years at least before you can actually get a license to serve puffer fish and become one of the chefs that serves it. And the first time you serve it to get your license, you have to cut it yourself and eat your own product, you know, because so many people die a year because of puffer fish. But I use that to see to it that none of you seek to be teachers. We've got to be very, very careful what we give people. But I use it, the puffer fish as another illustration here with regard to pride in a different way because the puffer fish... When we're puffed up, it's interesting, like the puffer fish, we're full of poison. We're full of deadly, deadly poison. According to the National Geographic uh, website, the puffer fish can inflate to a ball shape to evade predators, but uh, it's also known as the blowfish, by the way. And it's interesting because uh, have a, they have this elastic stomachs that are capable of holding huge amounts of water. The website declares and puff up several times their size if you've seen them it's true but these blow up fish aren't just cute most puffer fish contain a toxic substance that makes them foul tasting and potentially deadly to other fish the toxin is deadly to humans 1200 times more deadly than cyanide wow there's enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans and there is no known antidote now i think it's important to understand that when we get puffed up as humans and we think of ourselves as more highly than other people, not just God, but we exalt ourselves over others as though we're superior in some way, okay? Not recognizing it's by the grace of God that we even draw our breath and we have some kind of attitude, rec not recognizing that anything that you have is a gift from God. And we exalt ourselves, we become poisonous. We become poisonous in our marriages, if we exalt ourselves above our spouse, come poisonous to our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, having a bad attitude and thinking we're better than them in some way and, and exalting ourselves instead of praying for them. Pride leads to prayerlessness because if you're proud, you're not going to earnestly pray as though you're dependent on God. Pride is poisonous to our walks with God. 
because we don't get on our knees, you know. We become self-sufficient. We don't realize we need to humble ourselves and draw upon his power. And it's by the grace of God that we go. So we have to watch ourselves. We have to examine ourselves and look and say, hey, am I being proud and arrogant and putting myself before God? Am I being proud and arrogant and putting myself before others? You know, we have to ask those questions. It's really, really important that we do that. Uh, the antidote to pride is love and humility. Just as pride is the root of a train load of other sins, so love has fruit, and it's a, uh, an engine pulled by the grace of God and the love of God, which is shed abroad in the hearts by the Spirit of God of believers that is followed by all kinds of glorious virtues. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not vaunt itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. Amen. The Bible says God is love. Amen. So we need to walk in love and humility toward others. God hates pride. God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Notice that the evil way and the perverted mouth go with pride and arrogance. Pride's among the chief things that the Lord hates in Proverbs 6.17. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed in his blood are among those things that he hates. Proverbs 16.15 says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's powerful, you guys. Listen to this. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. How many of you want to be an abomination to the Lord? Please don't raise your hand. Okay. Pride leads to destruction. Okay. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. You don't want to be proud because it goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, however, and, and, and the reason pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit of, in a fall, uh, uh, number one, because it's repugnant to God. And the Bible says in Psalm 73 that of the proud and arrogant, God puts their feet on slippery places and their ruin is sure eventually. But it also just leads to uh, destruction in just the way in the normal fabric of life. If you're proud on the road and you're constantly cutting everybody, yourself, everybody off, right? And you're rude, eventually you're going to get an accident, you know? Eventually, there's going to be a problem. Eventually, there's going to be a brawl or something. Eventually, there's going to be something, you know, it's going to, tickets, whatever. Just the way life is. Because people that are proud think they're invincible. They put themselves before everybody else. However, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 16, the wise are cautious. The wise are cautious and turn away from evil. But the fool throws off restraint and is careless. That's why pride leads to destruction. If you're wise, you recognize that life needs to be lived with wisdom and cautiously. Proverbs 11.2 says, uh, when pride comes, it says, then comes dishonor. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble, there is wisdom. So proud people end up being dishonored ultimately. I read about a, uh, a leading you know, corporation who had fired their uh, CEO because they were People weren't producing the way they ought to. They brought in a new CEO who was proud and brazen and said, I'm going to turn this whole thing around. You, just, you guys are going to love my style. And, you know, I'm going to get rid of the slouchers. And he was just, you know, he went in there. They gave him a tour of the whole deal. He's taking this huge tour. And right away, 
You know, he wanted to show how he was going to, you know, heads were going to roll in his business, as, uh, in the business as he took over. And he saw all these people working hard. And he saw this one guy slouching, kind of leaning against a wall, watching everybody's work for a while as he's walking around. When he got to that guy, he loudly, brazenly said, hey, how come you're not working? I am working, you know. He goes, you know what? How much do you make a week? $300 a week. Why? He goes, $300 a week? He wrote him a check. Here's $1,200. You're out of here. Get the blank out of here and don't come back. The guy left, head down, and, and he goes, you got anybody, you want any of that? He goes, what did this guy do anyway here? And somebody just yelled across the thing. He goes, he was a delivery man from Domino Pizza, <laughs> you know. And sometimes, you know, pride just kind of acts, doesn't consider everything, doesn't consider the big picture, doesn't consider other people, just considers self. And we need to make sure that we don't live in a proud, arrogant way that, that we say, Lord, it's by your grace that I have life, you know. It's by your grace that I can actually not only have life, but I can, I can relate to other people that you made in your image and you've given them life and help me to love them. Help me to be what you've created me to be toward them. Amen. Help me to recognize that it's by your hand that I exist. It's in you that I live and move and have my being. And that these other people that you've made are image bearers that you've made as well. And that you are God and I am not. And it's by your grace that I live. It's very, very important to get that. It's very, very important. Now, it's interesting. Pride begs to be judged by God. Pride begs to be judged by God. Isaiah 2.12 says, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. Psalm 119 verse 21 says, You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Proverbs 15.25 says, The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 26.12 says, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. And when we read that scripture, which I mentioned earlier, that pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit before a fall, we can't help but think of all the biblical illustrations of people that became proud and arrogant and then were judged by God. I mean, you see it from the very get-go. Not only was Satan and the first humans, as we've talked about, and Sodom and Gomorrah, and what have you, but throughout the scripture, you remember Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar presided over one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, Babylon. Okay? And he was the Iraqi, you know, leader of the day, so to speak. And he, he taught, boasted, when he looked at Babylon, he said, look at this Babylon that I have built, you know, with my hands. And it was all about, it was like, it's a rant about, like, Lucifer's, I, 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 I. Not recognizing that. Who gave him his hands, you know? Who gave him his brain, you know? And guess what? God struck him with lycanthropy. Boom! He was judged by God. He went insane. He went mad. The king went mad for some time. And he began to just wander on the grass and just live like an animal for a duration of time. His hair grew long. His nails grew long. In fact, it's interesting. The Babylonian... Uh, uh, their own history says he became indifferent for a period of time toward everybody. He didn't even talk to his own family members. Isn't that interesting? Because God will hand us over to Satan, the Bible says. 
God will give us over to depraved mind. And God gave King Nebuchadnezzar over to, and by the way, there's a ton of people, not all of them, but there's a lot of people that are just mumbling, walking around, and a lot of times it's because, not always, but a lot of times it's because of a life of pride. Choices that are made that put themselves before others, you know, and uh, that is, sometimes it's a judgment from God. Sometimes it's just the way, you know, the hard life that people face because of circumstances. So we want to make sure we don't pass judgment and say everybody's like this because of this. But there are circumstances in Scripture where the Lord actually talks about one of his judgments that says is madness under the curses. But it's interesting, God used the, uses his judgments often as disciplinary measures to make us wake up that he is God and we are not. And guess what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? The Bible says that his sanity didn't return to him or he didn't return to his throne until, quote, he learned that the Most High was sovereign over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whoever he will. Daniel chapter 40, verse 30 through 33. And Nebuchadnezzar himself says in Daniel 4, 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Wow. And he's able to humble those who walk in pride. The Bible says in Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. There it is again. Isaiah 12, or 2, 11 says, the lofty looks of a man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted. He, he alone deserves to be exalted. Amen. Remember the Iranian, the Iranian or Persian leader Haman. You remember him in the book of Esther? Was he proud and arrogant? Man, that's one of the most disgusting figures you read about in Scripture. You remember? He had it out for Mordecai. Remember Esther's uncle? And he, he was so upset because Mordecai would not bow down to him. He went to obedience to him. So what happened? He devised a plot whereby he had gallows built. So guess who would be hung? Mordecai would be hung on those gallows. But God, what did the Lord God do? He turned things around, Amen. He twisted or turned around what Mordecai was going to happen to Mordecai. It happened to Haman. Haman ended up being what? He ended up being hung to death on his own gallows. Remember King Herod? In the book of Acts, we read that King Herod was exalting himself. And Father, we pray for whatever is going on over there. In Jesus' name, help them if they're fighting around the corner. Your son's name, give, give them grace. And, and uh, so we just want to encourage you to be warned. Remember Herod in the book of Acts? He was exalting himself and, you know, it's fun, interesting timing too when I was talking about these kind of things, conflict and all that stuff. Anyway, I think it's important when you think of Herod, King Herod, or Herod, he exalted himself and they started saying, he is not a man, he is a God, he's a God. And guess what happened? Boom, God struck him and he had intestinal problems, worms, and he died because of that. And it's interesting when you look at the history on Herod, he had these intestinal problems that he died from. Kind of interesting. King Sennacherib, he boasted that, uh, that, he, that he was almighty and powerful and he opposed the rebuilding of Israel and he was blaspheming or defying the God of Israel. And guess what? He was murdered by his own sons. Amazing. The, you know, it's, it's just, oh, throughout the scripture, we see this. You know, it's interesting as well because with King Uzziah, King Uzziah was an awesome king. Just like King Asa, King Asa loved the Lord. It says he served him with his whole heart. But you remember King Asa? He became proud and arrogant and self-reliant. 
He began to forge alliances with others and God afflicted him with a foot disease and it says he still did not repent and he died in his sin. Don't say people can't die in rebellion to God who once loved God with her whole heart. King Uzziah, fear the Lord. Okay, and it's funny because, or interesting, because in 2 Chronicles 16, 26, 5, it explains that, quote, as long as he sought the Lord, as long as he sought the Lord, 2 Chronicles 26, 5, as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Okay, that's interesting. He conquered cities. His fame spread throughout the world. But sadly, we read in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, quote, when Uzziah was strong, his heart was lifted up. Sometimes you've got to be careful because we're like, Lord, why don't you bless me? Why don't you give me all the da da And you get it all, guess what? Then your heart can be lifted up and you can forget God. And sometimes, you know, I think it's important as throughout our Christian walks to praise him that we don't have all kinds of things and all kinds of successes. You know, Paul was bummed out for some time because he prayed three times that the Lord would take this thorn of the flesh away from him. And then he said the Lord spoke to him and let him know that he gave him that thorn of the flesh so he wouldn't be exalted in, in his, the, all the revelations and knowledge he was being given. And he'd remain humble so he could be strong while he was weak. In his weaknesses, he said, therefore I will rejoice and thank God in my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Meaning when I recognize I need the Lord and I depend on him, that's when I'm really strong. But he said, he told Paul, Paul says he didn't want to, he, Paul was being prevented from being lifted up in pride. Paul beat himself down. He beat, him, he beat his body, he says, so after he preached the gospel to others, he himself would not become a castaway. It's something we all have to watch out because we're all made of flesh, amen? We all have a fallen nature, and if we're in Christ, we now have a new nature. We're supposed to walk in the newness of life now, but that old nature, which is attached to all of us, has pride that could take us over if we succumb to that old man, Amen? It's just a reality. That's just the reality that we have to face. So we have to keep pride at bay and, keep, and not hide it. We need to kill it. Amen. We need to be dead to sin and alive to God and walk in the Lord. Amen. Now, man, there's no wind, but just every once in a while it kicks up. So there's got to be a little breeze there. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Uzziah was really sad because he, got exalt, he exalt, started exalting himself. Uzziah was strong in his heart. Uh, it was strong and then his heart was lifted up. Man, it's just really sad because you know what, Uzziah, he was a king. But guess what he did? He went into the temple and he started acting like he was also a priest. Trying to take someone else. Come on, aren't you happy enough to be a king? Now you got to take the priest up, you know, and he started offering up incense with the censer, you know. And that was strictly forbidden for him to do. It was uh, what God called the priest to do. You remember when Moses... And Aaron were being, you know, Korah and his men, they were just upset. How come they get to serve God like that? How come all of us don't? And God called Moses. He was the humblest man on earth and put him in a position and so forth. And God opened up the earth and sucked down Korah. And the earth had Korah and his men for lunch, you know. But Uzziah was offering up incense in the temple. And when the priest confronted him, he became angry. He became furious. And as he was holding the censer, guess what it says? God struck him with leprosy. Wow of his pride and then it says he was isolated for the rest of his life he died a leper god's radical guys amen i mean we want to make sure we're humble before him and we you know fools rush in guys fools rush in where angels dare to tread we got to make sure we're not foolish you know and just do our own thing that's not a scripture by the way that's one of the famous 
quotes that's not in the Bible that some people think is in the Bible. Where is that? What's that reference? That's a good reference. It doesn't say that, but it says, it gives us that principle over and over again. Uzziah was greatly blessed and wonderfully helped by the Lord. It says, quote, until he was uh, strong, but he, when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Isn't that interesting? And that's a great picture of how pride comes before destruction, the haughty spirit before fall. That's Second Chronicles 26, 15, and 16, that he, he, God helped him, he was with him, and then when he was strong, he became proud, and his heart was lifted up to his destruction. What you, the proud don't recognize is when they're becoming arrogant, they're boasting, they're headed toward destruction. You're headed off a cliff. However, praise God, God gives grace to who? The humble, amen? God gives grace to the humble. Who are the humble? The ones who recognize, again, that he is God and I am not, but not only recognize, a lot of people recognize that, but live that reality. Live that you're God, you're my creator, you're my maker, you're the one that I depend upon, you're the one that I need, you're the one that I'm gonna give an answer to, you're the one that's gonna hold me account for all that I've done. You're the one that's so good and merciful that I should give praise. You're the one who gave me life so I should praise you with the breath that you've given me. It lives a life saying it's about him and obeying him, amen? And doing what he said to do since he's the creator and walking in love toward others because we're not their creators, amen? Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Wow, that's an interesting scripture. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Isaiah 57.15, God dwells with him that is of contrite and humble spirit. It says he's with those who are of contrite and humble spirit. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Proverbs 18.12 says, well, I already mentioned that scripture. No, it was 18.16. This is 18.12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Proverbs 29.23 says, once pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we've seen twice, once in James 5 and once in 1 Peter 5, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. In Luke chapter 1, verse 51 and 52, it says the Lord that he has done mighty deeds with his arm. Yeah, look at the universe. He has scattered those who were proud in thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now it's interesting. You cannot receive God's saving grace unless you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because God offers his grace to all. His grace is offered to all. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, it says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Amen. God wills that all will be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Amen. That whoever believes in him, there's a condition. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But when you're proud, you don't need salvation. For some reason, you think you're already saved you're already good you're already in a great place you don't need god but humility recognizes wow just one breath you just cut off your breath you're doomed that you need god but it recognizes that there's more than a physical dynamic there's a spiritual dynamic there's a moral imperative there's you know the bible says god gives grace to the humble now it's interesting because the receiving the grace of god though is conditional 
to receive God's humble. Grace is conditional. For, it doesn't say God gives saving grace to everyone, but God gives grace to the what? The humble. And the humble, humility is not a work. Humility is just recognizing, again, he's God, I am not, and I need his forgiveness because I'm a rotten sinner. Humility basically owns up to the fact of reality that I'm a sinner. The Bible says, he that says he's without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. It's a lot of people do that. Say they've never sinned. Or they say, well, sin doesn't even exist. The Bible says sin is transgression of the moral law. It says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The Bible says if we confess, the Bible says he who hides his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses his sins and forsakes them, he will be blessed. And the Bible says, if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, the Greek word translated confess in 1 John 1, 9 is homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo speaks of the word, to speak, you know. Homo legeo means to speak the same thing that God speaks about our sin in that context. God says, this is a sin. We don't say, no, it's not. I make up the rules, God. The Lord says, no. You can jump off the top of a building 10 floors up and say, I don't believe in gravity. But your belief does not change the fact that gravity exists. You can say, well, I don't believe in sin. I could just do my own thing. Well, it doesn't change the fact that sin is transgression against God's moral law and you will be held accountable. And just as a person goes splat on the ground who doesn't believe that gravity exists, so you will face the judgment of God. I encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found. Grace is conditional Contrary to many of our Reformed brothers and sisters, you know, in the Calvinistic camp who believe in unconditional salvation, basically, because they believe in unconditional election, irresistible grace, the Bible doesn't teach irresistible grace. The Bible teaches that you can reject God's grace and that God's grace is conditional. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, we have already read that God gives grace to the humble. Jesus says you must be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means you recognize that you, it's not all about you. You can't earn your salvation. It's not about what you can achieve to impress God to get into his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, the, theirs is what? <laughs> there's the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you have to, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be what? Poor in spirit. Jesus says repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, you recognize, man, I need to change my will, metanoia, repent, Greek word metanoia, have a change of heart, change of will that leads to a change of direction and change of lifestyle. So I turn to his narrow path, amen? Broad road leads to destruction, he says. Many go that way, but straight narrow is the way of life. The way that leads to life and fewer of those who find it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So it's important that we understand God gives grace to the humble. Grace is conditional. In Galatians 2.21, you can frustrate the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians 6.1, you can receive the grace of God in vain. In Jonah chapter 2.10, you can forsake the grace of God that would be yours, it says. Uh, Hebrews 12, or 10, 29 says you can, you can despise the spirit of grace. Hebrews 12, 15, it says you can fail the grace of God. Acts 14, 23, Paul and Barnabas preach to these brothers there that they must continue in the grace of God. Thus you can continue or refuse to continue in the grace of God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, you can go back to the law of Moses after having been justified and fall from grace and be severed from Christ. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, you can fall from your secure position or verse 18, you can continue to grow in the grace of, and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a choice. It's throughout scripture. And by the way, that's what the early church taught for a few centuries. That's what the scriptures teach. 
that God just doesn't unconditionally zap you and then you're irresistibly in grace and, or just make you born again while you're a proud, arrogant person, all of a sudden you're born again. No, you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You have to acknowledge that you're a sinner, amen? Gives grace to the humble. Then he will justify you through faith in his son. We're saved by grace through what? Faith, it's a condition. By grace, it doesn't say we're saved by grace and let's move on. It says we're saved by grace through faith that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works. We can't work to earn it. It's through faith, through trusting Jesus, through recognizing I'm a sinner and I need God's grace, amen? And you know what? Paul is an incredibly exa good example, you guys. He's an incredibly amazing example of the grace of God uh, and an amazing example of humility. Paul recognized he was a blasphemer. He was, was anti-Christ. He was, I mean, he was persecuting the church. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church. He ravaged the church, he says. He dragged people from their houses, he said. He stood there presiding over the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen said to him and others, how long will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can resist the Holy Spirit. Grace is conditional. Gives grace to the humble. But Paul, God appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Amen? Bright light blinded him humbled him, recognized he needed the Lord. Lord, he says, Lord. You know, deep down he knew it was Jesus from the get-go and he turns to him. Jesus says, how long will you continue to kick against the pricks or the goads? Goads were these long, sharp sticks they'd use to keep the oxes going and the bulls and what have you. And the bulls would sometimes kick and Paul was kicking against the direction God wanted to bring him. And, but you know what Paul said? I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He could have been disobedient. He wasn't. And God foreknew. He says, God put me into service because he knew, God has foreknowledge, that I would be faithful. So he knew that Paul would be humbled and humble himself under the mighty hand of God. But you know what Paul said? And this is important because this guy wrote half the New Testament letters about, guys. He said in 1 Corinthians 59, I am the least of the apostles. How's that for humility? In Ephesians 3.8 he says, I am the very least of all the saints. How's that for Humility. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief or foremost of sinners. He says, the foremost, a definite article, ho, the, not a, but the chief or foremost of sinners. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And that's what we all not, ought to say, amen. By the grace of God, if it wasn't for God's grace, we wouldn't even exist. If it wasn't for his mercy, we wouldn't be here right now. But Paul says, by the grace of God, I am that I, what, what I am. In other words, you can't boast in that. The Bible says, let him who boasts, boast in this. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man boast in his riches. Amen. That's what the Bible says. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom or the rich man boast in his riches or the mighty man boast in his might. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows the Lord. Give God the glory. We're saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone should boast. None of us should say, I'm saved because I'm such a good guy. No. No, you're saved because you recognize if you're saved, it's because you recognize that you're a sinner that needs God's mercy and you can't save yourself and you deserve judgment. So you recognize that that judgment was suffered on your behalf on the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ so you could pass from death to life. Amen. So you could have eternal life, you know. So it's important that we get that. It's important that we understand that. It's important that we seek him and that we know him and we recognize that every, the Bible says every, well, look at what I've obtained, says Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift, if it's a good gift, it's a perfect gift, it came from above, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. Amen? In fact, I love what Paul 
when I was putting this mess together, I thought, man, I want to use this scripture because I just love this scripture. To me, it's so important that we get, get this. And I try to remember this is such an uh, important scripture for all of us. Paul says, for who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Think of that. What do you have? Think of something that you brag about, boast about. If it's sin, you ought to repent. But if it's something really good, guess what? That was God's provision ultimately. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Isn't that heavy? I love that. It removes all room for pride and arrogance, you know? Oh, what a great intellect I have. Man, well, guess who gave you great intellect if you have it? God. Okay. Oh, I can't believe how fast a runner I am. Man, I'm so fast. I'm awesome. No, God gave you the ability to run fast. You better run really fast if you have that attitude. Okay. Look how big muscles, I, what big muscles I have. No, God gave that to you, you know. But I worked out. Yeah, he gave you the ability to work them out. Okay. I'm such a nice guy. Or I'm such a nice gal. Or whatever it is. I love my personality. I mean, who talks like that? I'm sure some people do, but it's like, whoa. You know, but it came, anything you have that's good comes from the Lord. Amen. And I love, uh, so you want it, the Bible says, you know, if you want to enter God's kingdom, Jesus says you must be humble. He says, if, you know, he takes a, takes a little child to himself, Jesus does, and the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And he talks about if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you got to become like this child. And you got to be converted, he says. And you got to be humble, he says, like this child. And children in those days didn't have any rights at all. In the Western world, we don't even relate, understand that compared to today. But in the past, they had no rights. They had to be totally dependent, absolutely dependent upon their parents. And, and this child, you know, he came to him. So he wasn't an infant. Some people say it was infant. No, it says he came to Jesus. So he obviously was a little toddler. But you have to come to Jesus. You have to come to Jesus if you want to be converted and humble yourself and depend upon him. Pick him up on his lap. We have to come to him and recognize and be, as I mentioned earlier, poor in spirit, not proud and arrogant. Now, it's interesting. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus says you must become the servant of all. Do you want to roll with Christ? Jesus said you must be willing to be persecuted, even to the point of death if necessary. Do you want to be uh, lifted up? Dial says, humble yourself in the mighty hand of God and you'll be exalted in due time. Humility is huge in how we relate to one another. I love Romans 12.3. It says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment. It's talking about facing reality. That's all it is. It's humility is just being real. Being real and acting in a real way, the way you ought to act. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has given you. We're called to esteem others higher than ourselves. Romans 12, 16 says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Wow. 1 Peter 3, 8 says, finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted and humble. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves. Wow. Regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Can you imagine how the world would be if everybody regarded each other as humble than themselves, as, as better than themselves? I think the presidential debate would have been a little bit different, right? At least the 
attitude, I think Trump could have said, hey, the ideas I have are way better than yours, you know, not killing babies in the womb, you know, and a lot of other things. But God calls us to have a humble attitude. Amen. And here, here you have Trump, you know, maybe some people thinking dying in the hospital, you have all these like negative evil ads from Biden going on. You're like, what in the world? Then he said he pulled them, but they weren't pulled unless they finally did pull them. But it's just crazy world we live in that's just so hateful and so arrogant. So we're supposed to esteem others higher than ourselves. The ultimate example of humility is the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Philippians 2.4, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then it says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Brothers and sisters, we need to get off of just looking out for our own personal interest. That's pride. We need to look at the interests of others as well. Have this attitude, it says. It's going to show you to have the attitude of following Jesus as example of humility. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He didn't, even though he exists in the very form of God, it said, he didn't hold on to that position as far as being worshipped in heaven and so forth, but he became a man. He didn't cease to be God, but he took a human nature upon himself but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself, it says. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't just become a man, but he died as a man. And it wasn't just an ordinary death. He even died the death on the cross, which was the most horrible way to die. And by the way, it's mind-blowing, you know, because in Isaiah, we read that his beard would be torn out. In Psalm 22, we read that his hands and his feet would be pierced, right? And they were on a cross. We have all this cross imagery in the Old Testament. But in Old Testament times when these things were being written and shown that he'd die on a cross, the Jews didn't kill anybody on crosses. They stoned you to death. But when the Romans were ruling in the first century, they killed their own people if they were guilty of capital offense they cut their head off but if they were a foreigner they made an example of him and he wouldn't allowed to do this to fellow Romans they would crucify him on crosses and hundreds of years before Jesus came in the scene it prophesied that he'd be crucified on a cross Psalm 22 his hands and his feet would be pierced they would, they would gamble for his garments and so forth it's a blow mind man now it's interesting because we're told in the, in the scripture that it's critical that we adopt this attitude. The good news is this. Humble yourself in the mighty hand of God and he will what? Exalt you in due time. Okay? Trust the Lord. We should already be so happy to be human beings. Why would we want to be God? It's just ridiculous to me. Do you realize the privilege you have as a human being? Do you realize the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 1, when God made the first two human beings, it says he blessed them, he said to them, you know, to rule over the, the, the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, right? And all that creeps over the face of the earth. Wow. You realize the privilege he gave you to be a human being and how we should be thankful for that? In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, whoa, when I consider that, the moon and the stars, he says, what is man that you consider him? 
and the Son of Man that you even care for him. Wow. But he says, but you made him a little bit lower than the Elohim, a little bit lower than the heavenly beings, the angels. Wow. We've been made just a little lower than the angels. Whoa. And you've crowned him with glory and majesty. God has blessed you. And then he says, he's given you dominion over the works of his hands and put all things under your feet as human beings. All sheep and oxen. Wow. And all the beasts of the field. It's amazing. And the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and all those things that move over the paths of the sea. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And by the way, the psalm starts that way, the way it ends. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We should be saying, Lord, you are awesome. You are amazing. You've, you could have made me an ant. You could have made me a bug. You could have made me a termite. And if God made me a termite, I would eat wood for Jesus, man. If I knew Jesus, you know. I'd be thankful for, just give me life. But he made you a human being. Be thankful that you've been made in the image of God. Amen. And don't try to exalt yourself and honor yourself. Go to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is the last passage we're, we're going to actually look at this passage a little bit. Uh, 18 verse 9. This is just so powerful. It talks about two men. And these two men could not be more different than each other. And they both go to the temple to pray. And it says they go up to the temple because of course the temple was on Mount Moriah. It would be uphill. And they go to pray and seek the Lord. Or at least one of them does, but they're both going to pray. And in verse 9 it says, As he also told this parable, Jesus told this parable, to some people who trusted in themselves. Notice they trusted in themselves. That's what pride does. Humanism. Self-reliance. It's about us. That they were what? They trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with what? Contempt. Remember, you have to read that verse, that verse and it really crystallizes why Jesus is saying the things he's saying. He's telling this parable so we know he's speaking against some people who trusted in themselves, right? And thought that they were righteous, they were self-righteous, and they held other people in contempt who weren't as righteous as they were. And this could, this could be a lot of professing Christians. If you don't say, by the grace of God, go I, and you think you've made your own righteousness and you're good because of some self-virtue rather than God's grace, you could fall into the same thing the Pharisees did. So notice what he says in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors are listed in the Gospel of Matthew a few different times with sinners and uh, drunkards and prostitutes. They were considered the filth of the nation. That's kind of how like, people look at the IRS today, right? People get cold chills when they think of the IRS. You know, and that's how, you know, they viewed tax collectors then. Even worse than the IRS today, believe me, and we'll talk about that maybe for a little bit. But these two men were very different. The Pharisees were political in their faith. They were part of a political sect. Pharisees meant separate ones. They were separate from the Greek cultures, opposed to the Sadducees more, who embraced the Greek culture more. And they prided themselves as being separate. And they were, they were very, very political. And it's just interesting because the Pharisees, uh, they had this, interesting law in verse 9 it says you know uh, verse 10 you have these two people and they have tr oral tradition and it's interesting because we read chapter 18 verse 9 
or verse 10, the two men went up to, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Notice, he's praying, but he's praying this to him what? Himself. Remember verse 9. What was Jesus saying? How he's coming against those who trust in themselves. And he says he's praying to himself. God, I thank you. Now he says, God, I thank you. Use the name of God. But he recognizes God in his words, but his prayer, in his prayer, he's a practical atheist. He's trusting in himself. Jesus said this against those who trust in themselves. And Jesus says he prayed this way to himself. And we have to make sure that we're not just using God's name in vain and praying all about us and how good we are and how it's all about us. But when we recognize the Lord God in our prayers, how did Jesus say to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's about his name and his accomplishments and his grace and not about what we have done. Amen? Amen? So verse 11, the Pharisee stood praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now this is interesting because the first thing he lists is swindlers. He's got the tax collector probably in mind right there. And by the way, they're standing praying. That was a customary way to pray at the temple was standing up. And by the way, you could go to the Temple Mount today. And when I go to the Temple Mount today, when they're praying, they're standing up. A lot of the, 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 the Pharisees' religion was very exterior, what you look like. You know, they brought in their robes and their phylacteries to make themselves look more holy. And Jesus said that they believed that they were more righteous than others and that they, they, they dress in that way, Jesus said. Jesus came against these guys. It was all about how they looked, you know. And it's interesting. They, and Jesus said, wash the inside of the cup. Then the outside will become clean to the Pharisees, you know, because they were concerned about exterior. And it's interesting. When they pray, they, you, if you're at the Temple Mount and you go to Israel with us at the Temple Mount, and you'll see a bunch of Orthodox Jews praying with all their garb on, and they pray out loud. Well, guess what? In, that's customary since the first century. They're praying out loud too. So this guy is praying out loud. I thank you that I'm not like those swindlers and like that tax gatherer. So it's just arrogant. And other people are hearing him and saying, wow, you're really righteous. You're, you're pure white compared to that guy. Yeah. Are we supposed to compare ourselves to others when we come to God in prayer? No, you go before the Lord and compare yourself to him and recognize that we fail miserably. Amen. And we need his grace and mercy. Okay. And tax gatherers, by the way. Well, let's go back to this guy. I fast twice a week. Verse 12. I fast twice a week. What in the world? He's saying it out loud. Keep in mind, he's praying out loud, standing up. I'm, thank God that I'm not like that tax gatherer over there. I'm not a swindler. I fast twice a week. And by the way, the Old Testament required the Jews to fast just once a year on the Day of Atonement. You could fast more. God called them to fast before him. But in Isaiah chapter 58, he makes it very clear that when you fast, God watches the heart and the inner attitude if you're beating your servants up, the, the, your employees, with, and blooding them up because of your anger and everything else, you're fasting. God, it's not the chosen fast as God says that he wants. But these Pharisees began to fast twice. They, they started fasting Mondays and Thursdays twice a week. became a tradition. Not that that's bad, but those just happened to be the market days when everybody would be there to see them fasting. Interesting. And Jesus said they fast to be seen of men. Jesus says, when you fast to your, his disciples, put oil on your face so it doesn't appear that you're disheveled, you know, because you're fasting. But you see, it was all about the praise of men. And the Bible says that the Jews that believed on him, many of them did not come to him because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. 
You should not want the praise of men. You should want the praise of God. You should not envy others or others' positions. You should envy, or I'm sorry, you should seek after the Lord. Amen? Now it's interesting, in verse 12 we read, I fast twice a week. By the way, uh, he goes on to say, I pay tithes of all that I get. And by the way, he's saying of all that I get. In the Old Testament, you're required to pay tithes from your produce and your farm animals and so forth. But he's saying all that I get, I tithe from. And by the way, Jesus said, in I think chapter 11 of Luke, that they would tithe even the smallest amount of things that they got, like their mint and their cumin. So they're like super righteous in their own eyes. And it's interesting because this whole prayer is a prayer of exaltation and condemnation of someone else. And our hearts should be for others. Is he loving his neighbor as himself right there? No, you know. And it's interesting because you go to the next verse. But the tax collector, see the publican was a, a, a tax collector. He was a, a tax gatherer. And that's what the publicans actually were. Not the Republicans, but the publicans were the tax gatherers. And uh, Telonies, is, the publican is the Greek, Greek word telonies and means he was a tax gatherer. That's what he did. And it's interesting because as a tax gatherer, tax gatherers were literally put in a list in the scripture even because they were especially vile in their behavior. Because the Romans would sell franchises to certain leaders to gather taxes for them when the Romans were ruling the Jews at the time. And they would use Jews because the Jews knew where the money was among themselves and the Jews would then do what? They would exact taxes from their own people to give to the Romans. The Jews didn't particularly like paying taxes for the reason that the image of, of Caesar who claimed to be God was on their coins that they had to use. The Jews uh, that had these, bought the, or were given these uh, tax franchises, the Romans loved it because guess what? They would get the money for them and they had a certain amount that they had to give to the Romans. But guess what? They could get however much money they wanted as a profit. They didn't get paid by the government so much as they were able to get extra money from what they took. So if you had a tax franchise, guess what? You just had to give this much from this quota to the Roman government. Anything else you could get from the people and squeeze out of them was yours. So they were very often typically corrupt, considered backstabbers, considered traitors. They were like a mob. In fact, they would actually send thugs after you to beat you up to get more money from you. Some of these tax gatherers. So they were, you think people have a hard time with the IRS? Can you imagine if the IRS was like that? They could get more to pad their pockets. They could have you beat up. It'd be a lot harder. We talk about baying the government now being hard. Give me a break. It was nothing compared to, you know, when they're crucifying you in the first century. Okay, it'll get uglier here though. Hence the prayers for Governor Newsom, you know. Now, uh, but I'm think, putting things in purpose. They were so corrupt. Remember Zacchaeus, the, the little tax gal that was up in the tree and Jesus invited him, himself over his house? Remember, he, he knew. He goes, hey, he, he had a conversion. He said, I'm going to pay back four times whatever I stole from anybody. It was just a known thing. He just blurts it out, you know. So the, the tax gatherers were quite, you know, wicked. And so let's keep that in mind. That's why you have this contrast. This Pharisee seems so righteous. The tax gatherer, he drips of rebellion against God. But the tax collector standing some distance away. In the, in the Greek, it's literally far away. Was, un was unwilling to lift up his eyes. He wouldn't even, it was customary to lift up your eyes to heaven. He didn't, couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was so ashamed of, of his behavior. 
but was beating his breast. He's beating his breast because he recognizes I'm such a sinner. And that's customary. That's in the Old Testament for recognizing uh, the, the profound sinfulness of our being without Jesus. Amen? And without obedience and without his righteousness. He was beating his breast saying, this is interesting, God be merciful to me, the sinner. God be merciful. Is he pleading how righteous he is? Is he proud and arrogant? No, he's totally humble before the Lord. He's beating his, first his physical posture. He's bowed before the Lord. He can't even lift up his eyes. He beats his chest and his prayer, be merciful to me. By the way, it's be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. And that struck me. So I looked up in one of my interlinears, or an interlinear, uh, the Greek, and sure enough, to make sure the is there, because it's a definite article, sure enough it's there. It's ho, H-O in the Greek, the sinner, okay? Ho with the omega and the, 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 the signature there. Ho, sinner. He's saying I am the sinner. Kind of like Paul who said that I am the what? The chief of sinners. He's recognizing himself as like the ultimate sinner here. That's humility. Understand? Jesus is underscoring the fact that this guy recognized he was in serious trouble with God and deserved judgment, but he pleads for his mercy. What an awesome picture. And by the way, the word sinner there, I'm sorry, the word be merciful, which I just think is very, very fascinating because uh, the Greek word for uh, merciful there is propitiation, be propitious uh, to me, you know, be merciful. And you only find that one other time. Propitiation speaks of propitiation, propitious, be appeased, the wrath that I deserve, you know, relent of it, you know. And uh, I think it's halaskos. I have to look up the Greek word, but I'm remembering that Greek word when I looked it up. And and I thought, wow, it's interesting because I looked at the different uses of that word and I only found it twice. It's only here and it's in Hebrews chapter 2 where Jesus made a payment for our sins because he's merciful he had mercy upon us through his sacrifice I think around 217 of Hebrews it's only used twice and he's asking God to have mercy upon him and be appeased on behalf of him and God was because God became a man and died in his place amen to give him mercy what a beautiful beautiful story and it's interesting because we read he calls for God's mercy cries out then Jesus says in verse 14 I tell you this man went or this man went to his house, what? Justified. Justified. Justified means, means to be right with God. Was he right with God because he did a lot of wonderful things to earn God's favor? Absolutely not. He was right for God, with God, because God, in his grace, forgave him and had mercy upon him. Because God gives grace to who? The humble. But what about the, what about the rich man? Or not the rich man, what about the Pharisee who thought he was all that? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. In other words, that Pharisee was boasting about how righteous he was, holding others in contempt, went home not right with God, hellbound. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, right with God, rather than the other. For everyone, now look at what he says, for everyone who what? Exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But who humbles himself will be what? Exalted 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 in, in what way lifted up exalted to the highest heaven into the lord's very presence for the believer precious in the sight of the lord is the death of his saints amen 
Amen? You want to be justified by God. You don't want to live for the praise of men and exalt yourself. You want to have praise of God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about how the believer will have praise of God. Jesus says, when the believer dies, who's trusting Jesus, in Matthew 25, that he'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen? That's what we look forward to. Amen? God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Grace to the humble, judgment to the proud. I've been praying a lot about the messages that I've been wanting to deliver so they wouldn't be my messages. Lord, give me your word. Share your, you know, and I've been praying and praying and then this is one of the messages that just really hit me that just emphasize, you know, I want to emphasize for you guys, for all of us, myself included, how important it is that we recognize that this world's becoming so proud and arrogant and so defiant of the living God that we have to humble ourselves before him right now, amen? And we need to make sure when we're seeing all this rioting on the streets and all this kind of evil going on and these bad things going on, that we don't get an attitude and saying, I'm glad I'm a righteous guy. I'm glad, Lord, I'm not like those rioters and I'm, I go to church, you know, and I, and I tithe or I give to the church and, and, you know, and I fast and I pray. I'm glad I'm like that. and I'm glad I'm not like those guys. No. You say, it's by the grace of God I am what I am. Amen. And Lord, please save those guys because that could have been me. Amen. Before I came to Christ, man, I was messed up. I would be any of those folks. And I can't stand before God and say, I thank you, God, that I'm like this. No, I say, I thank you, God, that you saved me by your grace and mercy because I would be doomed without it. Amen. And that's what we all need to give glory to God and praise to God and thanksgiving for his mercy and his grace. And we go into his throne room. We're not supposed to boast. We're supposed about us. We're supposed to say, hallowed be that angel said. We're supposed to pray a, a humble prayer. What's a humble prayer? Like the Our Father, which we've been studying, by the way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day your daily, you know, our daily bread, which is from you. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We need your mercy. Have mercy on us. That's what you're praying when you say that. Lead us not in temptation because we're not invincible, but deliver us from evil because it's by your grace that we stand. Amen? So it's all, when Jesus tells us to pray, it's all a prayer of humility and recognition that he is God and we are not and that we're utterly dependent upon him. Otherwise, we are living a fiction. We are living in a delusion if we believe that we can defy God and live on our own and go into eternity and everything will be fine. No. There's no more important question that you will ever ask than where you will spend eternity. You're either be with the Lord, God gives grace to the humble, or you're going to be under his divine judgment, separated from him forever because he resists the proud. I encourage you to accept the grace of God and be like that publican who said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Amen. And I think it's interesting. He didn't list 150 of his sins because it wasn't even about the length of his prayer. It was about the condition of his heart. Amen. God isn't impressed by, wow, that was such a long, wonderful prayer. No, the Lord wants to see your heart. He just threw up that prayer in humility. God, have mercy. I'm a sinner. Boom, that's all God needed. Recognize you're a sinner. Say the same thing I'm saying about you, and I'll have grace and mercy upon you. And I invite you to do that right now. If you haven't been saved yet, just acknowledge. Say, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I need your grace. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did for you on the cross. His death for your sins, his, his resurrection, where he conquered death. You'll pass from death to life. You'll have eternal life. The Bible says, whoever confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised from the dead shall be saved. Amen. So I encourage you to do that right now.
If you haven't done that, in your heart, say, God, have mercy on me. So I'll bow our hearts before the Lord. If you've never done that, just say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I thank you for making me. Yes, I acknowledge that I've blown it at times, too many times to even know, Lord, and remember, have mercy on me.